2: We are back. When Diplomacy Fails is so happy and proud to be able to entertain and astound you with the next phase of Season 3. We have put Britain Goes to War on hold for the moment, since I feel this is a story which I both want to tell and I feel needs to be told. Over the next few weeks, we'll be getting a window into the state of Europe, its major waves, events and issues at stake while we build towards our war in question here, the Second Anglo-Dutch War. It's an underrated war, and historically plays a great part in the story of the era, whether it was in the development of the Anglo-Dutch rivalry, the lessons in naval warfare for both sides, the distrust of France, or the personal growth of both William of Orange, Charles II, and Louis XIV. It's quite the tale to open our resumption of the story of the late 17th century with, so I hope you're as ready as I am to delve into it. Let's get started. I will now take you to the year 1659, where a strange sort of event was taking place, at an even stranger meeting place, between two mortal enemies. Do not desire war, remain at peace until a just cause or some great necessity such as the safety of the state or the need to defend your allies compels you, almost in spite of yourself, to have recourse to arms, and do all this in such a way that all can see that you only desire the peace of the realm. Harduin de Paraphix, tutor of Louis the Fourteenth, from the ages of seven to twelve in a textbook, Institutio Principis, which he wrote for the king's tutelage. would have been comical, had it not been so laden with importance. Cardinal Mazarin stared across the makeshift room at his Spanish counterpart, Louis de Haro, Spain's first minister and chief negotiator for the peace treaty in question. The air was heavy, and the presence of mosquitoes buzzing in the background reminded those present that they inhabited a building which was only recently created. Though war had waged between France and Spain for almost 25 years by this point, and though both sides could not afford the war to continue, neither side at the same time could afford to look desperate for peace. Desperation would manifest itself in the simple act of sending one's minister to the enemy country in hopes of a solution, but failing to do so at the same time would prevent any agreement being reached at all. To circumvent these difficulties, and keep up the appearances of national unity and strength, a solution was devised. Rather than France or Spain sending its minister to either country to negotiate terms, both would meet halfway, on an island situated within a river that bordered both countries to the south. Yet it would be undignified at the same time to simply meet on an island in the demilitarized frontier of each other's countries so the meeting place had to be built up to look more majestic and regal than it actually was. A footbridge from the Spanish and French side of the river was constructed, created using quality timber and covered by only the finest carpets. These bridges led to the centre island in question, but even this had been reimagined, so that the once unremarkable place now held a certain aura of majesty about it. A strange structure consisting of one room for the French and one room for the Spanish, with a conjoining room to link both, was created. This conjoining room was said to resemble the neutral ground, upon which both Cardinal Mazarin and Don Louis de Haro could meet and negotiate, safe in the knowledge that the ridiculous preparations which brought them here, to this room and to this island, had safeguarded the other's reputation and strength. Such were the lengths required to protect the illusions of power which both Spain and France had created. Once meeting face to face though, both men talked and debated in tones and with gestures that suggested that these two were merely former friends settling a dispute rather than two statesmen first amongst their peers tasked with bringing peace to two countries that hadn't known it in a generation. Cardinal Mazarin, the Italian-born French premier, had cut his teeth under the legendary Cardinal Richelieu's tutelage, and had gone on to represent France during the tumultuous Thirty Years' War, which this Franco-Spanish war had originated from. Despite his importance and experience, though, Mazarin found more than equal qualities in his less famous Spanish counterpart, Don Louis de Haro. Dejaro was the nephew of Count Olivares, Spain's resident premier and stately juggernaut, for over two decades. Much like Mazarin had been the protege of Richelieu, so was Dejaro the successor of Olivares. In the atmosphere of the Spanish court though, various influences and pressures meant that Dejaro never enjoyed the success or power of his uncle. Only at the beginning of the year of 1659 had Daharo lost a devastating battle to the resurgent Portuguese, whose outnumbered army and heroic victory against Daharo forced the latter out of military affairs for good and back into the diplomatic service where he remained. Like Mazarin, Daharo was his mentor's successor in more than the mere fact of his presence. He had been selected by Olivares to continue on the policy of previous years, which effectively resulted in continued wars for Spain, with a gradually reducing treasury and military base. Spanish power had been badly mauled by the results of the Thirty Years' War, and Habsburg supremacy was no longer assured, thanks to the reduction in power of the Holy Roman Emperor and the continued decentralization of the German states. Central Europe bore witness to the grouping of these German states towards more regional power bases, such as Brandenburg-Prussia to the north, Saxony to the northwest, the Palatinate in the east, Bavaria in the south and Austria in the southeast. But the German Habsburg peace also meant that the two lines of the Habsburg family, one in Spain, one in the Holy Roman Empire, would no longer coexist in the same war. Thus, once the Peace of Westphalia had been made official in 1648, after 30 ruinous years of war, Spain was on its own. The Spanish crown had been forced to accept the independence of its former subjects in the Netherlands as well, as the Dutch Republic rose from the ashes to form the premier trading and naval power of Europe, which its neighbours soon grew to depend on. Spain still clung to the Spanish Netherlands, mostly stretching across modern-day Belgium, but this hold was tenuous so long as France threatened her position there. Further concerns abounded for the once mighty Habsburgs, that the starkly powerful Empire of Sweden would upset its position in Germany and overturn its series of familial alliances which it had created in the German states and Poland. These fears had proved valid during the late 1650s, where despite the ending of the Thirty Years' War, its conflicts returned to Europe as a full-scale invasion of Poland and then Denmark brought the Swedes to the peak of their power, setting off alarm bells across Europe. Various powers, including the Dutch, had intervened in that conflict to ensure that Sweden did not occupy the position of supreme Scandinavian power by 1660. But even so, Swedish power was considerable and apparently irreversible by that date. What was more, it was power that took considerable nourishment from the rivers of French money that continued to pour into the country. France had created a new ally in this Swedish superpower, thus co-opting its own ambitions with those of the Swedish Vasa crown. The Franco-Swedish alliance was further proof that the European balance of power had shifted away from Spain But this didn't mean that the Spanish Habsburgs had to accept the new trend. The best way to ensure their own supremacy and perhaps bring about a change in the arc of their decline was to reinforce their security against France with a new peace, crush the rebellious Portuguese whom they had also waged war against for nearly two decades, and consolidate their international power in the Americas and the Pacific. If they could do that, they could offset the growing disparities in power between them and France in Europe proper, and perhaps preempt the French replacement of them at the top of the European food chain, if indeed. But these were a lot of ifs, and De Haro knew well that he first had to make peace with France if he wanted any of the other Spanish hopes to successfully play out. Thus, he had to persuade the veteran Cardinal Mazarin that such a piece was in that man's interest as a French statesman and he also needed a significant carrot to first whet his appetite for more. Don Louis de Haro believed he had found such a carrot in the mutually desired Spanish marriage, or the marriage of the Spanish king Philip IV's daughter, Maria Theresa, to her cousin and son of that king's sister, King Louis XIV of France. Louis XIV was born into a world of war. By the time of his birth on the 5th of September 1638, France had been at war for three years against its European enemies, but the conflicts of his homeland were internal as well as external. The Fronde was a catastrophically divisive and dangerous series of events in the formative years of Louis's life, which saw high-profile French nobles Princes of the blood and even close relatives wage a war of opposition against the ruling Louis and the regime of his queen regent mother, Anne of Austria. For years, Cardinal Mazarin had ensured that his predecessor's wishes with regard to foreign policy would be respected, but Mazarin was distinctly unpopular in the French court, for Jules Raymond Mazarin was actually born Julio Raimondo Mazzarino in Naples, and he would spend the rest of his life attempting to overcome the stigma attached to his origins. Rumours abounded regarding Mazzarin's parentage, his method of societal advancement, and above all the nature of his relationship with the Queen Regent, who since the sudden death of Louis the Thirteenth in 1643 had been without a spouse, it was whispered that anne and mazarin's relationship was more than merely platonic and though many biographers of louis the 14th have since argued against it some have simultaneously reasoned that it was possible in the very least that mazarin and anne may have fathered louis the 14th as louis the 13th was believed to have been somewhat unfavourable towards his own marriage bed and the fact that he had fathered four stillborn children in the years before Louis's birth certainly didn't help. The nature of Louis's upbringing meant that he was moulded and prepared for greatness, even despite the tumultuous circumstances that France found itself in during his childhood and teenage years. In May 1643, the Battle of Rocroi spelt decisive victory for France and a turning of the tide against Spain in the latter stages of the Thirty Years' War. The French court buzzed with news of the exploits of Louis de Bourbon, otherwise known by his more famous name as the Prince of Condé. Condé was the leader of a cadet branch of the Bourbon family, created by the uncle of Henry IV of France, who had been called Louis de Bourbon. Henry IV of France had been the unifying monarch of the French state, who had converted to Catholicism and thus ended the French wars of religion, of the latter half of the 16th century. His uncle Louis de Bourbon did not convert but his descendants did, and by the 1640s Louis II, the Prince of Condé, was the leader of this cadet line. To most in the French court it was perfectly natural that this high-profile relative of the ruling dynasty should make a name for himself in French society, but to Cardinal Mazarin Condé's success was worrisome. The French premier reacted to Condé's terrifying success on the battlefield by treating him as a threat to the unity and safety of the French crown and refusing or ignoring all recommendations for promotion or recognition that Condé made. Mazarin's actions caused a deep-seated bitterness to fester within Condé to the extent that by the time of the Fronde, Condé's increasingly abrasive behaviour and the court's paranoia led to Condé and his brothers' arrest in 1650. When this happened, the Fronde assumed a new tone, and many leading French families declared against the French monarchy of the tyrannical Regent Anne and her Italian pet. Treasonous ambitions were harboured as wealthy families sought help from abroad as the war with Spain waged on in the early 1650s. In response to rampant increases in taxation and the reduction in the say that the nobles had in French policy, which had been monopolized by Mazarin and Anne, France seemed to be tearing itself apart, but the beleaguered monarchy broke out its trump card just in time. Louis was crowned king on the 7th of June, 1654, after a decade of being a de jour king under the regency of his mother. The crowning of the young king months shy of his sixteenth birthday evoked a passion for their monarchy in the French people, who came to adore the courteous, pious, and thoroughly prepared Louis. Though he had been born into a world of conflict, this had inculcated more in him than a mere appreciation for the ins and outs of warfare. He also learned quickly that he was an important, worthy monarch, destined for greatness. He learned of the effects he could have on his people and of the loyalty he could inspire within them. His appearance after years of civil strife did much to end the bitterness of the Fronde, though Louis could not stop Condé fleeing to Spain, where he would lead the enemies of France, up until the Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659. Growing up in the environment that he did, it was little surprise that the future son-king derived such enjoyment and interest from warfare, from an early stage. He had been born into war, this was true, and everyone from his governess to his mother knew well that the success of France in the future depended on their king's ability to inspire his troops onto victory, as well as pick the right battles. As a child of no older than six, Louis was said to have pored over the battle plans and tactics used by the Prince of Condé to defeat the enemies of France at the Battle of Recroix. My son the king takes such a great pleasure in consulting the plan, wrote, wrote Anne of Austria de Condé, that he will not part with it and took it off to his room where he keeps it. On Louis's sixth birthday, an envoy from Venice wrote the following regarding the future king's character. His majesty has an alert mind, and the beauty of his disposition is an indication of high qualities, as yet undeveloped. He is of sturdy build, and has an animated, if rather serious expression, but it is a seriousness full of charm. He rarely laughs, even at play. He insists that his three-year-old brother, the Duke of Anjou, Shall show him respect and obedience. He knows and understands that he is king and intends to be treated as such. And when, occasionally, his queen mother reproves him, he replies that the time is coming when he will soon be master. When the ambassadors talk to the queen regent, he does not listen, but when they address him, he is very attentive. In short, unless his life and education play him false, he promises to be a great king. Another account, from the son of the French Foreign Secretary at that time, who was only two years older than Louis and often played with him, recounted that one of the regent's leading ladies, a Madame de La Salle, often played military-style games with them, noting, "...all I can remember is that Madame La Salle received us, pike in hand and drums beating, at the head of a company of children of honour, which was already numerous and was under her command." She had on a hat covered with black plumes and wore a sword.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: At her side, she gave them each a musket and kissed them on the forehead. She was not lacking in intelligence, but she adapted herself to the age of the king and acted like a child with the children. She made us drill, and the king, though still an infant, took an extreme pleasure in this. His amusements all had something to do with war. His fingers were always tapping on the drum, and as soon as his hands could hold the sticks, he had hung around his neck a large drum just like those of the Swiss guard which he was continually beating. It was his greatest pleasure. The enjoyment that Louis clearly derived from the methods of warfare was not merely a childhood obsession, but a continuing exercise in his education. For his 10th birthday, Cardinal Mazarin had a model fortification constructed in the Palais Royal. A visiting Dutch engineer noted the detail in this model, as well as the precise methods that Louis had tasked himself with, attacking it in a mock assault, saying that Louis was preparing to take it by assault with a company of 70 or 80 young noblemen, all dressed in the same way, that is, in grey cloth with black shoulder sashes and collars of gold lace. An inscription on the model given by Matzer in red, For the diversion of the king, but it almost certainly was intended to educate him in the ways of warfare, as well as divert. In the conflict-plagued world that Louis was born into, it was perhaps inevitable that even playtime could be used to inculcate in one a taste for military exercise. While his practical lessons may have focused on war, his actual taught education often extolled the virtues of peace. When Louis reached the age of seven, he was given a new tutor, hardouin de paraphix who made regular attempts to emphasize to louis how vital it was that peace always be pursued and war be viewed as the last option paraphix's lessons were best captured in our opening quote where louis was told not to desire war although his childhood was thus full of conflicting messages on the nature of war in his most significant act as a young man that of marriage louis acted in the name of peace in spite of what he had been taught to welcome and value in the glories of war his very status as an eligible bachelor was to be sacrificed in the name of sealing the peace treaty between france and spain the importance of tying spain to france by marriage was by no means a new idea and of austria herself was proof of this as a sister of the king of spain she had been married to louis the 13th to ensure the cooperation of the two countries in the turbulent years that followed. This solution clearly had little impact on the international situation, and Anne ended up following her own maternal instincts by insisting on crafting and then leaving a strong, victorious state for her son to rule, rather than ensure that her brother's kingdom and her homeland would have an easy time of it. Despite the checkered results of marrying distinguished royals to other royals, in terms of peacemaking, this new Spanish marriage was sought after by Anne, who wished to see her son and niece reinforce the Franco-Spanish relationship. Initially it seemed as though Philip IV would never agree to it, since Maria Theresa was his sole heir. None of Philip's offspring had lived past their teenage years and he was thus understandably protective of marrying off his only living heir to the French. Yet, Philip's second wife, who was also his niece, had given birth to an apparently healthy boy in late 1658, and this seemed to signal that the Spanish Habsburg line would survive regardless of Maria Theresa. On the contrary, this baby, named Ferdinand Thomas Charles, would die the following October, For a time, the troubled Spanish crown lingered on in the dangerous realm of heirlessness, and the very possibility of a Franco Spanish marriage depended on an heir being born to Philip IV and his wife. Cardinal Mazarin could not have known what the future held either for France or for Louis, but as he talked and treated with his Spanish counterpart on the 13th of August 1659, he would have known that above all, France needed peace. Just as surely as Europe had ached from 30 years of war, so too did France creak and groan under the immense pressure of funding and maintaining a war of so long a duration, with so many different theatres and campaigns, against its Iberian foe. It didn't help either that France was drawn to take part in other conflicts too. Mazarin had not initiated the economic war that occurred between France and the British Commonwealth across the Channel, but due to matters of state prestige and precedence, he could not allow the challenges, the insults and the recklessness displayed by the British Republic to go unanswered. While the war against Spain continued, so too did a lesser popularised conflict between what became Cromwell's protectorate and France. It never broke out into official war, much to the disappointment of the Dutch, who had fought a bitter losing war against Britain from 1652 to 54, but the danger of escalation was real. While restrictive navigation acts and British naval arrogance pushed French patience to the breaking point, London continued to barrage Mazarin's government with petitions to stop harbouring the exiled Stuart family at once. Owing to the tangled web of familial bonds created through opportunistic marriages, Mazarin could never comply to such demands. The marriage of the sister of Louis Thirteenth to Charles I meant that this newly widowed former Queen of England, Scotland and Ireland, Henrietta Maria, was first a sister and then, after Louis XIII's death, an aunt of the French King and thus she could never be evicted from her birthplace. This marriage also meant that the numerous offspring of Charles I and Henrietta Maria were cousins of Louis XIV. Such familial ties are a historically underrated fact of the era, but they help explain why Charles II, seen as the leader of the exiled House of Stuart, maintained such a fondness both for France and for Louis XIV. As the exiled young Stuarts hopped from lodging to lodging in the 1650s, they grew to depend on the generosity and kindness of sympathetic Europeans, chief among them the French court, where their closest relatives lived. Anglo-French cooperation during the period was heightened by the frightful psychological effect that the execution of Charles I had had on the Queen Regent and the young Louis XIV in 1649. When Charles I was executed during the high point of the Fronde, It seemed to suggest that dark times were ahead for the monarchies of Europe, and both Mazarin and Queen Anne certainly felt for the exiled Stuarts, whose chaotic kingdom had evicted them, only to fall into chaos thereafter. The multi-layered nature of European relations meant that Mazarin could never hand the Stuarts back to the Rump or Cromwell but so long as that family of exiles held little power, he had scant interest in investing too much time or resources in them either. Matsurin knew that it was often better to push the differences aside when it came to dealing with a common enemy, and so, when war broke out between the English Protectorate and Spain in late 1654, only weeks after the English had made peace with the Dutch, he jumped at his chance to extend an alliance to London. Even though England had spent years in an undeclared war of piracy against France, Cromwell recognised the value in a partnership with the enemy of his enemy. Though the war brought few benefits for England, and actually contributed to its already indebted nature, in 1657 an alliance was signed between the Protectorate and France, signalling that the Franco-Spanish War had now been extended across Europe. This alliance brought little in terms of Anglo-French cooperation though, mainly because of the bitterness held by the rump over the House of Bourbon's decision to offer asylum to the exiled Stuarts. Whether it was the added pressure of the British or the general war weariness that pushed Spain to negotiate, Mazarin appreciated that by the time he conversed with Don Louis de Haro in mid-August 1659, Spain had been exhausted, demoralised and heavily depleted from decades of war, with its neighbours, and it needed out. Mazarin also knew that the process of arriving at a peace treaty would not come on this first meeting between the two statesmen on the 13th of August, 1659. When he eventually left the tense atmosphere of what was called Pheasant Island two days later on August 15th, he continued to correspond with Spanish officials with a goal towards making legal the truce and articles of peace that had been laid down in the previous June of 1659. After returning to meet Don Louis again in late August 1659, Mazarin was confronted with a troubling issue, that of the renegade Prince of Condé, who had first led rebel nobles in the Fronde, only to escape to Spain and lead Spanish armies against his homeland since 1654. In France, Conde was persona non grata, but in Spain, Conde was a hero who had brought about impressive successes and saved Spanish fortunes from the brink of collapse. Don Louis insisted that Mazarin pay Conde back for such honorable service by forgiving the disgraced prince in France and welcoming him back home with open arms. Mazarin had serious difficulty doing this, as did Queen Anne who had fought so bitterly against Condé and the nobles he had led during the Fronde. The memory of the Fronde was still fresh, and the scars still visible in French high society, many years after the revolt had occurred. But Don Louis was adamant, and Mazarin recognised that this would be a serious stumbling block to the peace, if the Spanish could not be persuaded. Condé had been promised a return to his homeland by the King of Spain himself, Don Louis reminded Mazarin and if he broke such a promise, how could Madrid ever expect to recruit allies again? Both men continued to quarrel over the details, until an attack of gout forced Mazarin back to France in early September 1659. While there he was informed by a courier who arrived in Paris on the 9th of September, to the effect that a peace treaty had been agreed upon, with Condé's status left deliberately grey. What was more, it was agreed that Louis XIV and Maria Theresa would be wed on the 24th of October to seal the deal. But the Condé issue remained the sole obstacle to a concrete solution, even though hostilities had been technically suspended. Eventually, an embattled Mazarin agreed to a compromise. Condé would return to France with a reduced pension as Governor of Burgundy, while his son would make a public vow of loyalty to the crown and the Condé family would publicly disavow their previous actions and supplicate themselves before the French king. Don Louis claimed credit for the victory of getting Mazarin to agree to let the French turncoat return. But Condé himself also had a role to play. The disgraced prince was apparently eager to redeem himself and actually suggested to Don Louis far more concessions than the Spanish official eventually gave. By secretly knowing just how far Conde was willing to go to return home, Don Luis de Haro could present each concession as a great act of Spanish goodwill, aware of the fact that Conde would have forsaken all rights to govern anything if only he and his son could be allowed to return home. Don Luis's small victories notwithstanding, Mazarin soon turned his attention to the issue of the Spanish marriage. Louis XIV had selected a distinguished French envoy, the Duke of Gramont, to negotiate the marriage between himself and his cousin. Gramont was of Franco-Spanish parentage, he lived on the border, and he spoke both of the languages fluently, a critical asset for one negotiating matters of such importance. On the 28th of September 1659, Grammont met Philip IV in person, only to discover that the marriage would be postponed to May 1660. Gramont was not allowed to talk to Maria Theresa about anything to do with the marriage, such was the extent of court protocol. He could only present the princess with a letter from her aunt, Anne of Austria. Though during the second meeting with the princess in mid-October, Gramont hoped he would be able to pry more out of her, all he could get was a generic reply to the earlier letter from Anne, to the effect that Maria Theresa claimed that she would be obedient to her will. When Gramont returned to France on the 10th of November 1659, he was informed by Mazarin that Conde was to be forgiven, and Gramont travelled alongside both Mazarin and Louis Fourteenth in mid-January 1660, down south across the border, into Spain, to meet both the blushing bride of the sun king and receive Condé back into the French court. The meeting between the young French king and the experienced general and statesman was a significant one. Condé opened the meeting by beginning his rake of apologies and prepared to supplicate himself at Louis's feet as was the terms, but Louis the 14th interrupted him, saying, "My cousin, After the great services which you have rendered to the crown, I am far from having any remembrance of a behaviour which harmed no one but yourself. Such a response disarmed Conde, who later recalled that, A pardon so proudly conceded made it clear to me that I had a master. One of the great wounds of the fronde apparently healed, Louis XIV set off to heal the wounds between his kingdom and Spain. Louis would wait for his bride in vain, because upon the death of baby Ferdinand Thomas Charles in October 1659, Philip appeared to have sunk into a deep depression that prevented him once again from agreeing to marry off, his sole heir to the French. Not one to be so easily dissuaded, Louis continued to ignore the change of mind from Philip IV, and took the opportunity to visit coastal French towns in early 1660 apparently in an effort to kill time until Philip could be persuaded to let Maria Theresa go. When Philip's wife was reported to be pregnant again, the chance seemed to be ripe, and Don Louis informed Mazarin, who had returned to the neutral Pheasant Island in early 1660, that he was working on the Spanish king to get the marriage to go ahead in late March 1660, the dispensation from the Pope for the marriage of the two cousins was received, and Mazarin understood that the final barrier to the marriage was now Maria Theresa's father. Mazarin was informed by a French envoy that Philip had granted permission to Louis Fourteenth to write to the Spanish princess, only to change his mind and obscure the first letter that Louis sent once the correspondence began. Philip remained uneasy about marrying off his only heir, but with his wife's pregnancy progressing, he granted permission again. The ceremonies for the marriage would begin in June. While the plans for the marriage continued, Matzer and Don Louis continued their talks, which had since come to examine minute details, down to the status of tiny villages on the Franco-Spanish border or fishing companies in the Americas. The minutiae of the negotiations gave everyone headaches, but Mazarin couldn't be seen to give in, lest France be seen as the weaker power. Louis XIV and his court moved to a prosperous coastal town in early May 1660, only a few miles from Pheasant Island, to be closer to the negotiations between the French and Spanish premiers, in the hope that this would add a measure of urgency to the proceedings. It seemed to work. In mid-May 1660, Louis XIV and his court, taking in the early summer sun, were informed that Cardinal Mazarin had done it. The 2nd of June was to be the date that Maria Theresa would renounce her claims on the Spanish throne, and after this there could be no going back. The marriage, it seemed, would happen after all, and a true peace forged by tighter familial bonds would be assured. Further good news arrived for Louis on the 19th of May 1660. Louis XIV's previously disinherited cousin had seen his look completely turn around. Charles II, son of the executed king of the British Isles and the leading face of the exiled house of Stuart, had been offered the crown of England, Scotland and Ireland. Against all odds, and in spite of perhaps his most positive allies' best hopes, Charles II was to return to rule the kingdom of his birth, just as he had always dreamed he one day would. As, shockingly, as it had arrived, the British Republic was at an end, and the Restoration Era had now begun.